turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 18, this morning. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And these last few weeks we've just been taking um, a passage out of uh, the section that we're going to be looking at tonight. We look to go through verse chapters 18 through 22 this evening. But a, something that might be on my heart that from the Lord that uh, we wouldn't be able to give the kind of attention to in a survey of the Scripture on the Sunday evening. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles. Some of them have already gone up the aisles with the Bible. Sorry about you and that aisle. Um, wave your hand and uh, they'll come back and take care of you. And, uh, but if you don't have a Bible, just wave. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't have a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Isaiah chapter 18, we'll be looking, focusing most specifically at verse 4, but uh, we need to understand all of it. So we begin in verse 1. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the waters, saying, Go swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it, and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, and here it is for our attention this morning, God speaking, and he said through Isaiah, I will take my rest. And I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches and they will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. And in that time a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin. And from a people terrible from their beginning onward. A nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. To the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. Some of you are saying, what? But anyway, we will look at this this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word and all that is found in it. All of it is expression of your heart and of your mind. And we want you to know that we're grateful for every revelation of yourself to us. In your word. And we pray that you'd freshly fill us now with your Holy Spirit to be able to not only learn your Bible, your book, but to be able to commune with you and our personal relationship with you as we do. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. During the entire length of Isaiah's 40, 50, 60 year ministry, 
to the southern kingdom of Judah, the entire Middle East was dominated by a single great fact of life. And that fact of life was known as the Assyrian Empire. And at the time of this prophecy in the chapter before us here, chapter 18 of the book of Isaiah, Assyria was already a world-ruling empire. It was large, it was powerful, it had conquered much of what we know and call the Middle East today. And yet it was once again at this point in time in an expansionist mode. And it was desiring now to extend its reach and its kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel, into the conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah, also to conquer Syria and Edom and Moab and Philistia and Egypt and Ethiopia, which is the nation that's spoken of principally in the chapter that we're looking at. And each of these countries now are threatened militarily by this world-ruling empire, this military giant known as the Assyrian Empire. Now, all of this would have been bad enough for any of these nations if Assyria was a benevolent uh, empire or a benevolent conqueror of the nations around them, but they weren't. Indeed, they could not have been further from that than they were. Most of what is known about Assyria's national history is centered upon its military conquests and their their battles. And its history is, according to one historian, as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. And that is the truth, the honest truth about things. For example, we know from the historians that concerning the Assyrian Empire and their military, it was their custom upon conquering a nation to simply depopulate the entire nation. It would be like conquering the United States of America and moving the vast majority of the citizens of the United States of America to Argentina or to some other part of the world and then conquer the Argentinians and then to bring them up into the United States of America. They displaced entire native populations. It wasn't unusual for them to kill upon conquering a city every single man, woman, and child that was left alive even after the battle, even after the conquest, and then to behead them and pile their heads in a great heap at the entrance of the city. Their tactics included taking the captives of entire cities who were put in large groups of people all together and then to burn all of them by the thousands alive. In some cases, when they would conquer a city, they would take the prominent and even the average citizens within that city and they would flay the bodies of those who fought against them, skin them alive, and then drape their skins over the walls of the conquered city. Concerning the prisoners of war, there were no Geneva conventions of war for the Assyrian military. They would conquer people and then cut off their arms, cut off their legs, cut off hands, 
cut off uh, feet of those who had resisted them. And in some cases, they would then put these great stakes at the uh, gates of the city that they would erect there and the conquered city, and they would take the leaders of the city and impale them alive on the stakes. And there was an intent behind all of this. It was madness, absolutely uh, uh, a blood quest. But there was a method behind the madness. There was an intent behind all of this cruelty. And the intent was to instill fear in the nations that surrounded them so that news of their brutality would then spread throughout all of the region to all of the nations that they were yet going to conquer in order to lessen their resolve of their resistance against the Assyrians and indeed to uh, surrender themselves, the city, their nation, wholesale before the Assyrians without a battle at all. The Assyrian military, they were experts in this thing that we call terrorism today and, and in the use of terror tactics. They were experts not only in physical warfare, but in psychological warfare. And psycho- the psychological side of warfare is very, very significant. And they had mastered it, at least to the degree that it could be mastered uh, 3,000 years ago. And it's important to realize that this was the great political and national context of Isaiah's day. This was the great cloud that hung over the entire region, not just of Judah and Israel, but over the entirety of the Middle East. And these tactics of the Assyrians worked, and the book of Isaiah records the effectiveness of these methodologies against the nations around them. And the reaction of these nations uh, fills the book of Isaiah The populations of Edom and Moab and Syria and Egypt and Israel and Ethiopia and Judah, all of them were filled with fear at the coming of this uh, military juggernaut, ruthless, cruel, called the Assyrian uh, Empire. And in their panic and in their desperation, they began to attempt to do what Uh, what any of us would kind of consider to be normal. They attempted to establish political uh, alliances, military alliances with the nations that bordered up against them, surrounding nations, with the idea that if enough of them could unite, they might be able to force, uh, uh, form a, a significant enough confederation that they would be able to together defeat the Assyrian army as it would come. And so the northern kingdom of Israel aligned itself politically with Syria and then attempted the both of them to align, uh, add the southern kingdom of Judah as an alliance to make it even stronger. And when Judah refused to become a part of their confederation, then the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria invaded Judah with an attempt to overthrow their king to force them to become a part of this uh, three-nation confederation. You say, why would the northern kingdom of Israel attack their brethren in the south? What could make them so desperate as to do something like that? The desperation was born out of a fear of Assyria and knowing that Assyria was expanding and that that section of the Middle East was uh, the next 
next uh, thing on their particular menu. The southern kingdom of Judah, in their fear, approached Egypt in an attempt to uh, come to an alliance and a confederation. And here in the passage that we're looking at in chapter 18, we have messengers coming all the way from Ethiopia, coming to Judah, also coming to Egypt, calling on both of them to join the Ethiopians in a military alliance in an attempt to withstand the Assyrian juggernaut. And the threat of Assyria spun the whole world at that time into a frenzy of fear and frantic activity. The news of it filled the newspapers and it dominated private conversations. It was the single great focus of governments and of their citizenry. And if we were to put ourselves in their shoes, we would understand it. To have a ruthless, bloodthirsty, and apparently unstoppable military of a nation that singularly rules the world at your border and to know that no one has been able to stop them yet. And then when they invade your city, they invade your nation, they will not only kill you, they will kill your children, they will kill your grandchildren. And if you're fortunate enough to survive the battle, it will only mean that they will take your homes, they will take your pots and pans, your wealth, your power, everything you own, and move you into an entire other portion of the world, and you will never see your homeland or your hometown again. And this, and thus the frenzied activity of man and ambassadors being sent from one capital to another to another, negotiations and assessments and secret meetings, and the whole section of Isaiah that we're in and studying at the moment, and certainly this chapter captures all of the frenzy of the activity. You've got the buzzing wings speaking of the messengers being sent and all of the far and wide going to the nations surrounding them, to Judah, to Egypt, in vessels of reed. All of the activity is an expression of fear in the face of this Assyrian juggernaut. And yet in the midst of all of it, in the midst of all of the activity of man, of Ethiopia, of Egypt, of Syria, of Judah, of Israel, in the midst of all of the activities and the negotiations and the political alignments and all of this frenzy of human activity in the face of the fear of Assyria, we notice God's reaction to the threat of Assyria from the city of Jerusalem, the center of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. The reaction of the Lord is recorded for us in verse 4. And so, for the, so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look upon, I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. And we notice two things here. First of all, that he was watching everything that they were watching. He was acutely aware of everything that they were acutely aware of. 
And he saw all that they saw with a greater clarity than they could ever dream of. He saw it from the peerless perspective of heaven, his throne. And God says, not only do I see Assyria, the threat of Assyria, not only do I see what is putting fear into the heart of man, even in the hearts of my own people, he says, everything is as clear to me as if I were physically present, as, as physically present as the clear heat of daytime sunshine and nighttime dew is present during a Middle Eastern August and September during the period of the harvest as the fruit and the trees are harvested and the grapevines are harvested. But notice in contrast to all of their fear and its associated frenzy of activity that he's not only aware of everything that's going on, but verse 4 tells us that he's at rest. He is the picture of peace. In the face of all of this. And the word rest in the Hebrew there, it means to have peace. To be at peace. To be experiencing quietness. And why in the world would God reveal himself as such to Isaiah and to Judah? Why would he speak to them of the fact that in the midst of all that was sending them frantically in a thousand different directions all at once, that while he viewed the same things, none of it disturbed his peace at all. Why would he find the need to communicate that to them? Was it to communicate, listen, I have peace and you don't have peace, ha, 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 Of course it wasn't what he was wanting to do there. What God was communicating to his people was this. I'm at peace. And when I'm at peace, you can be at peace. I'm at peace. And because I'm at peace, you can be at peace. I think about how wonderful that is to realize. God was at peace. The whole world was frantic with fear, and he was at peace for many reasons. But chief among them was what is known as his omnipotence and his omniscience. That is the fact that he is all-powerful and that he is all-knowing. Now think about how much of our anxiety in life is a result of our sense of powerlessness in the middle of some situation. We find ourselves in some difficult place in life, and as we sit down to try and figure all of it out, we discover that the problem is bigger than all of our mental and emotional and physical and material resources. And we come to realize that this situation is completely beyond our own control. And once we realize that this particular situation that we're in outstrips all of our resources, it is beyond our control, our great tendency then is to panic. God never experiences that emotion. He never has, he never does, and he never know, and he never will. He never knows the emotion or the feeling of panic. Never experiences it, ever. 
Because there's no problem in the universe. No problem in the world. There's no problem in the individual life of any one of his children that he's powerless to fix and powerless to do so in a moment in time. Another cause of our anxiety in life results in our lack of knowledge about the situation that we're in. And often we feel that we're without all of the facts that are needed to properly understand the situation because we cannot properly understand the situation, the size of the situation, the complexity of it, the scope of the situation. We begin to panic as a result of it. We know what we know and what we know terrifies us, but what we know about the situation and what could happen, we know that we only know the half of it. And always, unlike God, we lack a full knowledge of the situation that we're in. And so often we're without all of the facts that are needed to properly understand that situation. And always, again, unlike God, we lack a full knowledge of the future. We don't know how this is going to turn out. We live our life in the present. We live it in the moment. We know what we experienced a minute ago. We know what we're experiencing right now. We have no certainty in terms of in and of ourselves what our reality will be one minute from now, five minutes from now, a day from now, a week from now, a year from now. We have no idea what the current crisis in our life is going to translate into and become later on this afternoon or tomorrow or next week or a month from now. And that uncertainty is very hard on us. And God never experiences that. He's never involved in any situation that he is not completely aware of every fact concerning that situation. And number two, that he knows exactly how that situation is going to play out fully. And that's why it is so important when we find ourselves in a great crisis in life that we talk that crisis over with the Lord in prayer. I know how I see those kind of times in my life. I see them as a time to freak out. <laughs> I understand everything about the leaders of Judah in this passage and Israel and Ethiopia and Syria and Edom and Moab, all of them. I understand the frenzy of being in the middle of something and then pulling on every favor that you've ever have owed to you by every single person and power all around you. I know what it is to sit down and try and assess a situation and put all of my nickels and dimes up against it, whether material or whether intellectually or emotionally, and try to bring it to bear upon all of that and then to frantically try to deal with it in my own way and in my own resources to run to Egypt, to run to Ethiopia, to run to Syria, to run to Mob, to run to Dad, to run to Uncle Billy, to run to Aunt B and to Opie and to Goober and the whole cast. 
But our Heavenly Father, who lacks nothing in terms of the power to fix our situation and who lacks nothing in terms of knowledge about our situation and how it will play out, and when he looks at our situation, is the picture of peace. And that's the one that we need to turn to in these times of crisis in our life. When I was originally diagnosed with cancer, after being stunned by the news, my mind kicked into gear in a way that would have made the Ethiopians proud. I've got to find an oncologist. I've got to find out more about this disease. First, I've got to learn how to um, pronounce it. And I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to do this, and this, and figure this out, and go in this direction, and pull this string, and then talk to this person, and move in this direction, and plan my memorial service. And that was all just between leaving the office and getting to the car. And then I prayed to the Lord, and it didn't happen all in one prayer. And when I prayed to him, I discovered that he was aware of everything that I was just becoming aware of. And despite all that I was feeling and all that I was going through, he was completely at peace about my situation. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing to go to the Lord in prayer and find him as frantic as we are. Hold on just a moment. What? What happened? Now tell me. Fill in the blanks for me. <laughs> I just got woke up from a nap. I'm in a little bit of a fog here. And then he becomes as anxious and crazy as we are in the situation. And I discovered him to be completely at peace about my situation. I prayed in so many words, Lord, I know how I see all of this. Would you please tell me how you see all of this from your vantage point, from the vantage point of your omnipotence and your omniscience, from the greatness of your power and your knowledge and your wisdom? And he did. And he told me how he saw it by giving me a verse from Scripture immediately. And then weeks later, he gave me a word of knowledge concerning what was the most troubling aspect of this diagnosis to me. More recently, I had a little bit of a bicycle accident. had a couple of real low points in that healing process. One just about four or five days, actually three or four days after the accident. And the extent of the injuries began to dawn on me on top of the cancer. Wow, what in the world are you doing on a bike with an immune system that's compromised by cancer? Your body's already fighting against enough and blah, 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 and all that. All that common sense, all those things that many of you had been thinking for such a long time yourself 
And I'm in, and then a couple of days after the surgery, and I think this is probably common for everyone, but when the full extent of those injuries began to hit me and the progress was so slow and you have that, you wonder whether your body is going to be able to get out in front of so much that's going on. And to just be able to say, Lord, how do you see it? I know how I see it. I'm ready to send messengers to the Egyptians and to the Ethiopians and anybody that I can. I know how everybody else sees the situation. I know how I see it, but I need to know how do you see it from your vantage point, from the vantage point of your omniscience and your omnipotence. And he gave me a verse in the middle of all of it, very simple verse, very well-known verse, one of the most well-known verses in the entire New Testament. God gave it to me and I said, couldn't you give me something a little more special, something a little more obscure so that when I tell people the verse God gave me, it would be out of Malachi or Habakkuk or Nahum or something like that. He gives me something, a verse that everyone knows from almost the first month of knowing that they're a Christian. And of course, I'm kidding about all of this. The verse that he gave me represented how he viewed my situation from the peerlessness of his perspective. And I was happy to have that. And I have begun already to experience the fulfillment of that passage in my life from the experience. And I could go on and I could talk about times in my life when my heart was broken in a personal relationship. I could go on to talk about the handful of times when I thought something involving my ministry as a senior pastor at Calvary Chapel in Modesto would be the death of me, that I wouldn't survive it, that I wouldn't outlive it. And I say all of these things not to draw you into my world, Simply prime the pump for your list. You have your own list. You know what you're in the middle of this morning. I only mention mine to get you thinking of yours. We really don't know anything about a situation in our lives. We cannot come to grasp it with any kind of clarity at all until God has told us how he sees it from his perspective And in our passage this morning, he reminds us concerning every crisis we face as his children, that he sees all that is going on and that your situation has his attention and he is at peace concerning the ultimate outcome of it. And you need to trust in that as you wait on him for the answers to your prayers. And sometimes it's easy to pray for such a long time for some situation in our life, some need, or some situation in someone else's life, or some relationship that is 
broken and destructive in our life. And then one week, somehow we, this thing that we've prayed about for months and even years, one week we give up on it. God is taking too long in the situation. We feel that he doesn't understand what's really happening. How could he wait so long and still be clear about the situation? Anyone that would have the kind of clarity that he claims to have about my situation and this situation would have solved this and resolved it long ago. And we cease to pray, and there may be some of you just in the last week or two concerning some great crisis in your life where you have given up hope, even given up hope to the point of ceasing to prayer. Pray after long years of prayer concerning a given situation. And God wants you to know that he's very aware of the situation. And he is familiar with it with a detail that you can't even dream of having. And he is powerful enough to fix it in a moment in time. And he will fix it when the time is right. There are a couple things that we need to remember in all of this. And one of those things is that his delays or his seeming inaction, when he rests and he doesn't move, when he studies and he watches a situation, when we don't want him watching the situation any longer, we want him moving in the situation. We want him active in the situation. The importance of realizing that his delays and his inaction never occur because of some ignorance on his part. He knows, he's watching, he sees. And then further, to never ever allow God's delay to cause you to doubt his love for you. And here's why. Third, it's important to realize that God only delays, and this is a truth born in this passage, To realize that God only delays in order to do something even better in our lives than we can think of. And no matter how perfect we think our plan or our timing is concerning some situation in our life, if the Lord appears to disregard our timing and our plans, it's only because he is up to something even better for our lives. And sometimes it can be so hard for us to believe that any plan could be better than the one that we have envisioned, the one that we're asking God to confirm and to act upon, and even to believe that God could have a better plan than the one that we have planned. But I'll tell you, I can honestly say that every time God has disappointed some expectation of mine, and he readily disappoints my expectations all of the time. And every time he has ignored some suggestion of mine, some prayer of mine seemingly, some idea 
of mine. Every time he has taken and disappointed that expectation of mine on the short term, as I've allowed time to then go by and I then see the reason for the delay becomes clear to me, I've always discovered that the delay was for my benefit and for my good. We'll read the verse in the next few weeks. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, where Isaiah declares, Therefore the Lord will wait, rats. Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. We think about the examples of this in the Bible. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament given these great promises by God that he would not only become great in his family, but that he would become great in the world. And he's given these visions and these dreams as a boy of 17 years old. And then a long series of events lands him in an Egyptian prison. For years and years and years and years, these promises look like nothing. The promises that God gave him earlier in his life, about his life, they looked like they were taunting him. They looked, he had to feel like he was a fool for ever believing such a thing about his life, even from the lips of God. And then one morning as he awakens in the darkness and the dankness of that Egyptian prison. Somebody is reminded about him, makes him known to Pharaoh, and before the day is over, he goes from an Egyptian prison to becoming the second most powerful man in the entire world, second only to Pharaoh himself. But it required all of those long years for God to develop the character within his life that would then allow him to be successful in the headiness of becoming so powerful so quickly. The delay was necessary. It was for his good. And then when for the rest of his life, Joseph looked back upon that season and he realized the delay was God's grace and his mercy upon my life. The plan that I had for my life, how I translated God's promises to me and what it would turn out to in my life paled in comparison to what God had in mind. God, I thank you that you waited and you delayed, that you disappointed my expectations because I was thinking of something so much smaller. And the same thing is true of David. Given the promise that he would be the next king of Israel when he's barely a teenager in his mid-teens. And it would be a long decade, more than a decade, before he would become the king even over Judah and Benjamin, let alone the king of all of Israel. And yet all of those long years when God's promise to him looked like nothing, looked like a farce again, looked like something that God had sent to mock him. 
And then finally one day he becomes the king over all of Israel. And he realizes that if it happened instantly as a teenager, he would have self-destructed if he had not been carefully prepared by God for all of the responsibility and all of the character that would be required to be successful in that position. When God delays in our lives, it's only because he plans to outdo our best and our highest expectations concerning the situation that we're in. Again, quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, a familiar verse. One of those verses that I look at and I say, Lord, Protect me from the curse of familiarity concerning these glorious passages. It's a passage that I wish that every time I read it, I could read it for the first time. Isaiah 55, and God speaking and declaring, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But he doesn't stop there. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it's important to realize that God's timing in our lives is based upon a far greater goal than we typically operate under. I can't speak for you, but I think you're a lot like me. When I am in a great crisis... In a situation that is provoking raw, primal fear inside of me. The answer to that situation (laughs) for me is for God to get me out of that the quickest and the easiest way he can. All I think about is escape initially. But when God works in our lives... He works with a greater goal of himself being glorified through our lives and through our circumstances. And oftentimes, in order for that to happen, it requires a situation becomes harder before it becomes better, becomes worse before it becomes better. And sometimes it will require that a situation even become humanly impossible before he steps in and rescues us in it. I think about what Jesus did in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the city of Bethany. He receives the news of Lazarus' sickness by Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he knows that by the time the messengers have already come and delivered the message to him, that that. Lazarus is already dead. And Jesus waits some distance away from Bethany before he comes into the city. He delays coming into the city until Lazarus has not only been dead, but he has been already buried and laid in that tomb for four days. The body of the process of the body beginning to rot and break down already well underway. And then he shows up to raise Lazarus from the dead. If he had come to Bethany while Lazarus was sick and then uh, Lazarus became better, everybody would have wondered in their mind, well, maybe he would have gotten better anyway. Or maybe it was the vitamin C with rose hips that Martha was giving to uh, him. Or he was taking massive amounts, you know, of emergency or or vitamin D or whatever it might be uh, going on there. 
But he takes and he waits until there's a point in time where there was no doubt in anybody's mind over whether he was going to get better on his own or not. He waited until Lazarus was completely dead for four days, humanly impossible for him to be raised. And then Jesus comes in and raises him from the dead, and it allowed the power of God to be seen. God expresses his power and wisdom in our life in such a way that he gets glorified through our lives. It's not just about me escaping a situation as quickly and as easily as I can. People are watching you. They're watching your life. They're watching how you respond to the crisis. They're listening. And God knows that many are listening in the hope of seeing something different than what is typically seen in a human being. To see something that looks like a faith in God and a trust in God. And then to watch what God then comes to confirm that faith with accompanying signs and wonders in his own time and in his own way. And so often God expresses his power and his wisdom in our life with the concern of conforming us into the image of Christ. In other words, he expresses his wisdom and his power in such a way that it causes us to grow spiritually. Not just to get me out of this thing as fast as I can, but God looks at it and he thinks to himself, I'm going to get you out of it. You're going to be delivered from it one day, whether in this life or in the life to come. I'm completely at peace about that. God is. And yet he looks at this situation and he says, this is a unique opportunity. Maybe in terms of the scope of it, there'll only be five or six opportunities of this size and this magnitude to conform some particular aspect of your character into the image of Christ. Something in you that is so contrary to Christ, something in you that is so strong of your nature, so strong of your flesh, that it will take some circumstance of this strength to break you and allow a death to occur there, that the resurrection of the life of Christ can then occur within your life. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is one of the most famous promises in all of the Bible. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But it should almost be forbidden that we read verse 28 without also reading verse 29, the verse that immediately follows. And in verse 29, 
Paul declares, for whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, yes, God declares that he will work all things together for good in our lives. But his definition of good is not always our definition of good. My definition of good is that I get out of this situation as quick as I can. Or that on the other side of this situation, I'm a bit wealthier than I was beforehand. I live in a little better house. I have a little nicer car at the end of all of this. I have very worldly and materialistic views of good, and I superimpose them upon God. God says, no, I'm going to work this together for good, and I'm going to do the greatest good that a God can do in any life. I'm going to use this circumstance to conform you into the image of my Son. Because this situation is going to allow me an opportunity, again as I said, that may only avail or surface in my life, but a handful of times in the course of my life. And God can allow these circumstances into our life, knowing that we cannot become like Jesus in some great area of our lives any other way. And we can end up very confused by God's timing and his actions in some situations in our life if we don't realize this, if we don't look at the situation and in a moment of honesty with ourselves say, I hate this circumstance, I hate this trial, I hate this deep fire that I am in the middle of. But in all honesty before God and man and with myself, I must admit that this is making me more like Jesus in a way that might not otherwise occur. In terms of his compassion, his love, his understanding, his grace, his eternal perspective, the material simplicity of which, in which he lived, and so forth. God works in this way. Now let me close by telling you the rest of the story here in chapter 18. The rest of the story is recorded in chapter 37, verse 36. God had promised Judah through Isaiah's prophetic ministry that the Assyrians are going to invade Judah and they will conquer every bit of it except the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem will not fall to the Assyrian Empire or its army. And in fact, when they attacked Jerusalem, God has said earlier in the book of Isaiah here that I will take care of that military and I will defeat it in a night between the sunset of one day and the dawn of another day I will defeat that army and subsequently to God's promise to Judah the whole of Assyria's army led by King Sennacherib himself laid siege to the city and everybody in that city had to feel like we are doomed But on a given night, from his throne in heaven, at just the right moment, 
God dispatched a single angel to supernaturally wipe out the Assyrian army. And in one night, he miraculously struck down and killed 185,000 frontline battle-hardened Assyrian troops. And all of it is poetically described in verses 5 and 6. And though for a time it appeared that God is only a quiet watcher of the events of our life, at just the perfect moment he demonstrated his power and his providence. God keeps his promises Always, always, he keeps his promises. In fact, this fact is so sure that you can praise him today for the fulfillment of the promise that he has given you from his word concerning your situation even before it occurs. And that's exactly what's happening in verse 7. God says to Isaiah, send back these messengers that have come from Ethiopia seeking an alliance, military alliance with you. And in essence, God said, send them back to their land and let them know we don't need the political alliance or the military alliance that you're offering. Thanks for offering, but my people don't need it. I will take care of the Assyrian army And when you one day hear about it, you will return to Jerusalem with a sacrifice to give praise and worship and honor and glory to me for what it is that I've done. I think that it's a wonderful thing to realize in the midst of any great trial that we're in that we don't have to wait until we see the fulfillment of the promise, the fullness of that, to begin to praise God and to worship Him. But to take that promise and to be able to say to God, I believe this is true of my life. I believe this to be true of my future. I hold on to it. I honor you. I bless you. I praise you concerning what you have said to me in this passage of your word, concerning what lies out in front of me, and to begin to praise him and worship him ahead of time. And it does something good in your spirit. Every time you do it, I hope every Christian has experienced that in our lives, that we don't just wait to praise him when we've seen the fulfillment of the promise, but to praise him by faith. You say, how can I praise him by faith? I haven't seen the fulfillment of the promise. You praise him by faith. Lord, I know this promise is true. I know that this is going to be the yea and amen concerning the circumstance that I'm in. And when you praise God in this way, it it isn't just you and God, but there is the Holy Spirit begins to get engaged in all of that. There's an inner man inside of you that's there by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to respond to that. He begins to say amen to that. And it's a wonderful feeling, and it's a wonderful experience. You do, and I don't have to wait until we see the circumstance resolved and solved to begin to experience worship and victory and praise in the circumstance. That can happen immediately based upon the simplest promise of God in his word 
toward us. Wonderful to do it, to claim that promise and to give him that praise. If God is at peace concerning our situation, and he is, then we can be at peace concerning our situation. Everything is under control. You're not just anybody as a Christian. You're a child of God. You have a heavenly father. You are in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had it in your experience as a child where you were with your father and you walked into some kind of a situation or you're in a room and everything's quiet, there's a lot of people, it's all going just as it should, and then some commotion breaks out that alarms you as a child. And suddenly your heart is gripped by fear. And the first thing that you do is you look at Dad and to see how is he responding to the same situation that is terrifying me And when we look at him and we see him at peace, then we realize that we can be at peace. Why? Because we know that we are his greatest concern in that room. And what is true of our earthly fathers, the best of them, is always true of our heavenly father. He knows exactly what he's doing He knows exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. It's coming. It's coming. He is at peace. And he wants you to be at peace as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. I just want that is we're in a spirit of prayer here that one or two or five or twenty of you that the Lord had me speak on this passage for this morning. I want you to assimilate it. I want you to say it over in your mind, in your heart, and even more importantly, in your spirit. Let it sink in. And just say to yourself, God is at peace. I can be at peace. God is at peace concerning my situation. I can be at peace. And so, Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would add your yea and amen to this great, and wonderful truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.